Today we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 19. And the question for us today that kind of really is going to bring actually chapters 11 and 12 together is this. Is Jesus really God's king? The whole theme of the book of Matthew is Matthew showing that Jesus is king. And so um, this this question, for particularly from these couple chapters, is is Jesus really God's king? Because Matthew's been showing that, and, and I'm sure a lot of people... We're wondering that, and maybe even someone here today might be wondering that. Is Jesus really God's king? Each of the Gospels shows that after a few months of initial enthusiasm for Jesus and his ministry, opposition began to grow. And and actually the opposition grew to such a point, eventually the Jews rejected Jesus. We see both the leaders and the people eventually crucified Jesus. In chapter 11, in chapter 11, Matthew begins to describe this rising opposition. And you might, someone might ask the question, well, why oppose Jesus? Why oppose Jesus? I mean, he's a nice guy. He loves people. I mean, he's going around doing all these miracles. He's healing people from their blindness and their leprosy and palsy and the list goes on and on i mean isn't jesus doing good why oppose jesus well you see jesus ministry here's the problem jesus ministry was not corresponding to the messianic expectations that the jews of jesus day had see they expected a conquering king They wanted someone to get rid of those evil Romans, the evil Roman Empire. We don't want Caesar as our king. No, they didn't want that. And in fact, we we see in this passage here, even John the Baptist had noticed this and wondered if Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. So let's, let's look at, first of all, we see here in chapter 11, John's confusion, John the Baptist's confusion. Look at verse 1. Matthew 11, verse 1 says this, When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, that's, by the way, John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John's confused. And and by the way, notice in verse 2, the setting for this is John is in prison. Why is John in prison? Well, uh, you read elsewhere in Scripture, you found out that John actually dared to preach against King Herod and his sin. Remember, Herod uh, actually was known as a murderer, but he was also a very sensual man, and lusted after someone else's wife and took someone else's wife. John noticed that sin and preached against that sin, and that earned John a place in prison. So we see he's in prison now as a result of preaching against sin. And so John, uh, he, he, here he is, he's sitting in prison, and, and supposedly, by the way, he was in prison for about 18 months before he was finally executed. And so John sent his disciples to ask Jesus two questions here. Two questions. Notice the first one there in our passage in verse 3. Are you the one? Are you the one? And and by the one, he's, he's asking the question, are you the promised one, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for that all the, the prophets in the Old Testament told us about? The second question that was asked was, should we look for someone else? Should we look for someone else? Now, it needs to be said here that before we attack John for his state of confusion here, we need to be reminded that the greatest characters of the Bible all had weak moments. And John is no different from us or, or everybody else we see in Scripture. And that should actually be reassuring. That should be comforting. It's reassuring to me that even a man of John's spiritual stature was subject to doubt. 
And there are several reasons why John the Baptist may have doubted. Reasons, by the way, that also cause many Christians today to doubt. What you say, well, what are those reasons? Number one, first reason that may have caused John to doubt was difficult circumstances. Difficult circumstances. Humanly speaking, John's career ended in disaster. It ended abruptly in disaster. You say, why? Well, as I said earlier, he confronted King Herod with his sin. He had preached exactly what needed to be preached. He preached to the very person whom it needed to be preached. And he did it exactly when it needed to be preached. He was faithful to the Lord in every way. He called sin, sin, and he called sinners, sinners. And now he was in prison because of his faithfulness to God. In fact, you can even see there's a sign here in this picture even in the Holy Land, you'll, you'll see there's, there's even a memorial to John the Baptist, which you can see on that sign there. And so we see John was cut off from what was happening. And according to the Jewish historian Josephus, Herod had imprisoned John in the fortress of Machaerus. I've given you a picture of the fortress, at least the outside of what's left of the fortress. And by the way, this was about five miles or nine kilometers East of the Dead Sea, which I've given you a map here if you're wondering where it is. It's kind of, kind of right there in the middle east of the, the Dead Sea. It's a place that was very hot. It was a very desolate environment. And so here's poor old John the Baptist. He's done the right thing, faithful to God. He's now sidelined. And for a, for a guy like John the Baptist to be sidelined, stuck out in this hot, desolate place, it must have been very difficult for a man who I would call a bit of a free spirit. He was a man who had very free temperament. Remember, he, he liked being out in the wilderness. He didn't mind being alone. And in fact, I've given you a picture of the prison, which uh, many people actually believed was John's prison. Prison. What they did is they, they, dug, they dug into the side of the, the mountain, and then, and then they would cover up there and... Uh, and that's probably where John was in prison for about 18 months. Very difficult circumstances. Negative, by, by the way, negative circumstances are painful, and they can also be frustrating, but our response should be the same as John's. You say, well, what did John do? John went to the Lord. Well, in this case, he couldn't himself go to the Lord, but he sent other people to the Lord, and, and he asked the Lord to deal with his doubts. And that's what we need to do. Go to the Lord and ask Him to deal with our doubts, our worries, and our fears. A second reason why John may have doubted was because of incomplete information. Incomplete information. Although John had heard of the works of Christ... His information was second-hand, and it wasn't complete. As far as we know, after Jesus came to John and, and John baptized him, as far as we know, John, John never met Christ after that. He didn't travel around with him. And so he often got second-hand incomplete information. And here he is now. He's in prison. He's been in prison for approximately a year. But even while Jesus was preaching, he had... He had no, and John was preaching, there was apparently no direct contact with Jesus after Jesus' baptism. If Jesus, by the way, if Jesus' own disciples failed to understand him, which they did, they, they failed to fully understand Jesus, they, they, in fact, they demonstrated little faith. Jesus said several times, you of little faith. And so even after demonstrating little faith, after being with Jesus, intimately for three years, it's, it's easy to understand why someone like John, who hasn't been with Jesus for three years, may have had some doubts. And that's the way it is for many believers today. We, we also doubt certain truths about God. Sometimes we might, might have incomplete information about God himself. Uh, we might have inadequate knowledge about the Bible. None of us know everything about the Bible. 
And so we all need the truth of God's Word to protect us from doubt and to dispel that doubt when it actually comes to our minds. A third reason why John may have doubted was worldly influence. There may have been some worldly influence. What Jesus was preaching and doing didn't match with what the Jews thought the Messiah would do. And John probably shared some of those misconceptions. The Messiah was expected, first of all, to free Israel, to free Israel from its bondage from, from Rome and from Caesar. Remember at this time of Jesus' day, Rome, Rome was the ruling, the ruling uh, power of the world and Israel was under Roman rule. And so Jesus had done nothing to oppose Rome. He hadn't, he hadn't even opposed it in word, let alone actions. In fact, remember Jesus even said, give unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. Well, that didn't meet up with the messianic expectations of many Jews of Jesus' day. Well, that's sadly the way it is for many people today. Many people are confused or perplexed about the plan of God. Their minds are full of ideas that, that are around them, that, and sometimes we can fail to understand God's plan. Uh, even if we are reading the Bible and reading Scripture, sometimes we don't we, we can be influenced by the world around us. Uh, I'll just give you a few examples if you're not understanding what I'm saying. For, you know, for example, we might hear people ask these kind of questions. If Christ loves everybody so much, why do children die and people starve and get diseased and become crippled? You ever heard that question? Oh, we hear those sort of things all the time, don't we? Another one might be this. If God is a God of justice, why is there so much corruption and injustice in the world today? A third question is this. Why do so many good people have it so bad and so many bad people have it so good? Others ask this. If God is so loving and merciful, why does He send people to hell? And the last one we can think about is, is this. If God is so powerful and false religions are so evil, why doesn't He just wipe out those false systems? <laughs> well, do you see any problem with those questions? There, there's worldly influence. There's, and may, may even be some incomplete knowledge and understanding there. And so, sometimes people, they, they make their own God. They, they, they make, and they, it's really an idol. These kind of questions are sometimes a result of idolatry. And so because the Lord doesn't fit their preconceived of ideas of what He should be like, sometimes people become perplexed. And sometimes, frankly, they even become angry and sadly even become blasphemous sometimes. Fourth and last reason that John may have been Doubting is because there's unfulfilled expectations. Unfulfilled expectations. Jesus was not living up to what John had expected and even what John himself had prophesied, let alone what the Old Testament prophets had prophesied. John had announced the coming of the Messiah, had rightly pointed out that he would exercise a ministry of judgment. Just go back to, to the time of Jesus' baptism, and notice what John said about Jesus. He talked about his winnowing fork. That's the idea of judgment. And so this is what the Messiah was expected to do. But what did John actually observe? Did John see any judgment coming upon Caesar and Rome and, and bad people? No. On the one hand, Jesus was clearly doing good, no doubt about that, but where was the prophesied ministry of judgment? Where was it? As far as John could see, he wasn't seeing any of that. So there was unfulfilled expectations. D.A. Carson said it well, quote, <clears throat> it's on the screen. It was all right to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, still storms, preach righteousness and announce the kingdom, but where was the judgment? Had the corruptions and cruelties of Caesar been abruptly shut down, 
Had the hypocritical temple leaders been banished? Had the disgusting corruptions of Herod and Antipas been confronted? Why was he, John the Baptist, languishing in the stifling heat of the prison at Machaerus fortress for challenging the morals of Herod, while Jesus, the alleged Messiah, did nothing about this injustice? End quote. So, here's the point. As far as John could see, the world was the same as it was before Jesus came. It was just as evil and wicked before Jesus' ministry began. There, there didn't seem to be any difference. So there was unfulfilled expectations. So how does Jesus reply to John's confusion? That's point number two. Let's look at Jesus' reply in verse 4. Verse 4. And Jesus answered them, these disciples of John, he answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus didn't answer with just a a simple yes or a no. Remember, the first question was, are you the one? Are you that promised Messiah? Jesus doesn't say yes. And, and you might wonder, well, why isn't, why didn't Jesus just come out and say, yes, I am the promised Messiah? Well, I think Jesus knew that just a simple yes or no wouldn't satisfy John. So what did he do? He, he told John's disciples to present their teacher the evidence. Take him the evidence. What does he say? Go and report to John what you hear and see. What did they hear and see? Well, blind receive sight. Hey, there's lame people who are walking, lepers are cleansed, deaf are now hearing, dead are raised up, poor have, have the gospel preached to them. And then what did he do? He sent John's disciples back as eyewitnesses of many miracles. And evidently, although it doesn't, it's not really obvious, evidently he performed these miracles in their presence so that they could report back to John what they personally had seen and heard so there was there was personal proof there indeed evidence that jesus was the messiah the the promised one jesus was very gracious wasn't he in responding to john's confusion so i have some application here from the from this particular text number one come to god on his terms not yours We must come to God on His terms, not ours. The problem is many people want to make Jesus in their image. Which is really idolatry, by the way. They want to create a comfortable Christ who makes life easier. They want a Christ who makes life simpler. They want a Christ who's going to meet their felt needs. A lot of people like that. Sadly, that is the kind of Christ that's too often preached from modern pulpits. You'll hear it from the radio. You'll hear it in magazines. You'll hear it in Christian books. You'll hear it on TV. Sadly, that's what is often preached. A comfortable Christ. However, Jesus is not the comfortable Christ, is He? In fact, He actually demands that you come to Him on His terms. It's not about you. It's about Him. So my friend, here's the message. We must come to Christ on His terms. Number two, be totally committed to Christ and His cause. Here in this text, we have the demand of the gospel stated as a beatitude, and yet in in, in negative terms here as well. And, And what is that doing? It's actually emphasizing the danger of rejection. Very dangerous to reject Christ and the gospel. It's a very serious warning about falling away. Yes, Jesus is, is talking to John the Baptist specifically, but he's talking to, Jesus, to John's disciples and all of us who should be Christ's disciples. A very serious warning about falling away. Many today have the same doubts that John did. They want Jesus to bring reward. They want Jesus to bring victory in their life. They want a Jesus who's going to give them health, wealth, and prosperity. 
Yet Jesus continues here to call us to a life of commitment and even suffering in the midst of this evil world that we live in. In fact, in verses 7 to 15, we're going to see Jesus' testimony concerning John, which, which, which shows us that we, there will be suffering in the midst of an evil world. So let's look at Jesus' testimony concerning John. Again, Jesus is very gracious. John's confused. The poor guy's languishing in prison. But Jesus gives grace. He gives grace. Look at verse 7. And as those disciples, they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. Let's just stop there for a moment. This is part of Jesus' testimony concerning John. First of all, we see that John had good character. John had good character. What does Jesus say about John? Number one, John overcame weaknesses. He overcame weakness. He demonstrated his ability to recognize and overcome his weaknesses. Yes, he's doubting. Yes, he's confused. But this is what great people do. This is always what great people do. They don't just give in to their weaknesses. They don't give in to their, their despair. He fought through that. He, he fought through his weaknesses. He refused to give in to those weaknesses. And he went to the Lord as best he could. Number two, John was strong in conviction. Very strong in conviction. Which made the first characteristic, by the way, even more remarkable. We have a person here with we uh, it's uh, a person with weak convictions shall I say is seldom reluctant to face doubts uh, someone who's weak in conviction doesn't want to change their beliefs very often to him wavering's no cause for embarrassment or shame but John wasn't like that John is very strong in his conviction a very the very strength of John's convictions made his admission of doubt all the more admirable doesn't it and so in order to answer people's questions, Jesus asked them a question. It's a very interesting question. Look what he says about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? What did you go out there to see? Did, did, a reed shaken by the wind? <laughs> no. So he appealed to their own experiences here. Asking, in effect, what he was asking them was this. Was the man you saw preaching and baptizing in the wilderness, was he uncertain in any way? Was, was he indecisive? Was he wavering? Was he a reed shaken in the wind? That's essentially what Jesus is pointing out. And the answer is, of course not. The answer is no. I mean, did you ever hear John change his message? Did you ever hear John compromise his standards in any way? Of course not. He wasn't afraid to, to call sinners sinners and call sin sin. In fact, when the leaders came out in the wilderness, the, the religious leaders came out to hear him, John just called them, you brood of vipers. <laughs> John wasn't afraid of them. He wasn't a man pleaser. He's strong in his conviction. Number three, John denied himself. And Jesus points that out here for us. because He says, hey, Hey, he didn't go around wearing fine clothing. In fact, we read, you read Matthew, we find out, what did he wear? He wore camel's hair. He wore camel's hair. He didn't, he didn't go around eating fine food either. What did he eat? Again, Matthew says he's eating locusts and wild honey. So his lifestyle was actually a visual picture, a visual protest against self-indulgence and self-centeredness. His life was a voluntary commitment to self-denial. And why did he do this? He did it as, a, as an act of devotion to God. We also see in verses 9 to 11 that John had a privileged calling. Very privileged calling like no one has ever had. Look at verse 9. What then did you go out to see, Jesus asked? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet... 
This is he of whom it was written. This is a quote from the Old Testament here. Behold, I send you my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John had a privileged calling. Think about this for a moment. Up up until Christ's own ministry began, no human being had been called to a task as high and sacred as that as John the Baptist. John was chosen. He was the chosen one, if you will, to announce and prepare the way for the Messiah. John had a privileged calling. Nobody ever, nobody else ever had that kind of a privilege and calling. But we also see in verses 12 to 14 that John had a powerful opportunity. A powerful opportunity. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's stop there for a moment. See, you need to understand something if you don't know your your Bible history, that John the Baptist actually entered the scene of history at precisely the right time. It was according to God's own plan. After 400 years with apparently no word from God, Israel was expectant. You see, the, the, the last of the... The Old Testament prophets was was about 400 years before this time period. And so then 400 years of silence, that intertestamental period when no scripture was written, and then and then you have Jesus coming along, Jesus begins his ministry and John's John was the focal point, if you will, of redemptive history. He's the culmination of the culmination of Old Testament history and prophecy. In fact, fact, the very last chapter of Malachi mentions Elijah, the one who is to come. By the way, that was John the Baptist. Malachi was talking about John the Baptist. He was one like Elijah. Because most Jews did not accept John or the Messiah, Jesus gave a final admonition and warning here. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what is Jesus saying there? Jesus is, is saying this. John is the forerunner of the Messiah, and I'm, I am the Messiah, as John has testified to you. I'm the king. I am offering you the kingdom. If you turn to me in personal faith, you can be a, a citizen of this kingdom. So if you have ears to hear, hear that message. That's a very powerful opportunity that God had given to John. Let me give you some application from this text. Number one, Christians need to realize what they have today. If you're a Christian, you need to realize the the great privilege and opportunity you have. The Bible says that every citizen of the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. That's what Jesus said. Do you believe that? By the way, what does that mean? You say, what does it actually mean for a citizen of the kingdom to be greater than John the Baptist, because Jesus said there's no one greater than John. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus is saying it's better to experience the blessings of the kingdom than to be the one who actually inaugurates the kingdom. That's all John got to do was inaugurate the kingdom, to, to kind of get, get the ball rolling, so to speak. But we, past John now, can actually enjoy the kingdom and the blessings of the kingdom. So John's greatness lay in his being the transition to this new age, if you will. But he never actually got to experience the the blessings and the benefits of it. It's a bit like like Moses bringing the, the children of Israel to the promised land, but Moses never actually got to go into the promised land and enjoy the blessings of the promised land. Well, that's a bit like John the Baptist. He, he's He's showing people but he didn't get to enjoy it. Didn't ever got to experience the benefits of it. Therefore, Christians need to realize what they have. A Christian has the new 
access to God. That's one of the wonderful blessings of being in this, this kingdom of heaven that Jesus is talking about here. Because the Bible says we can now come boldly to the throne of grace because of the finished work of Christ. We have access because Jesus is that one mediator between God and man. We also have the power of prayer. We, we can pray any time of day or night, 24-7, because God never takes a holiday. He never turns His switchboard off. We have the power of prayer. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit within every believer. Those are just some of the wonderful blessings that Christians have. And sadly, it's too easy for us to take these privileges for granted, isn't it? I mean, how often do you really meditate upon the truth that the third person of the Trinity resides within a, a Christian? Well, Matthew wants his readers to hear and understand this truth. You say, what truth? We live in the kingdom, and we have great blessings as a result of being a citizen of that kingdom. So I ask you, are you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? And you might ask, well, how do I become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's not a result of your works. Ephesians 2 says, it's not by works. Why? Because then we can boast and say, hey, look what I've done to earn my way to heaven. The Bible says there is nothing you can do to earn your way to heaven. In fact, you've done everything to deserve hell. You've broken all of God's laws. You haven't loved Him with all, and you don't love people as you love yourself. Therefore, you've broken all of God's laws. You've lied. You've stolen. You're a thief. You're a liar. You're an adulterer at heart. You're covetous. And you're all the other Ten Commandments, what it says. And because of that, we're all, we all stand guilty before this holy God. And God says, I cannot allow sin into heaven. In fact, Revelation says there will be no adulterers, no liars, no thieves, and no murderers in heaven. So how do you get to heaven? Well, love and mercy met at the cross. Christ paid the penalty of sin, defeated the power of sin, and one day the presence of sin will be gone as well. Praise God for that. So you must run to Christ, see Christ, believe in Christ, His finished work. A second application is this, is that Christians should expect violent oppression. It's interesting, Jesus even uses the word, the word violence there in verse 12. <laughs> and by the way, this is a major theme of Matthew chapter 11 and chapter 12. Expect opposition. We see the opposition for Christ and His ministry uh, be building and building, and, and eventually we're going to see Christ crucified. By the way, the Bible says that violent people will attack the new kingdom. Violent people will attack Christ, and they did. Violent people will attack Christ's disciples, and they are. So followers of the king need to expect to go through the same hatred as John did and as Jesus did. In fact, Jesus says in, in the book of John, the gospel of John, that the world hated me, the world's going to hate you. Expect the same. Is, is the servant greater than the master? Of course not. Well, in verses 16 and 19, we see the crowd's reaction to John and Jesus. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Notice that phrase in verse 16. Uh, the, the first phrase in verse 16 is introducing something for us. That phrase, to what shall I compare this generation? It's, that, that is a, a common oriental expression, of, uh, particularly of Jesus' day. 
It was used to introduce a parable or another illustration. So Jesus is using it to illustrate something. He's saying, get ready, here comes an illustration, a parable. Now, some of those who refused to believe the gospel covered their unbelief with criticism. Now, don't go to that yet, but uh, Jesus actually compared these unbelievers to foolish children sitting in the marketplace. I've given you a picture of a marketplace here, actually. They objected to everything that, that other children did. You ever played with somebody? It's really obnoxious, isn't it? When you try to play with someone, now those of you who don't, who are older, remember back when you were a child here, okay? Remember, you're trying to play with someone, and uh, <clears throat> and for whatever reason, you're not getting along, and so, you know, they they threaten you and say, hey, if you don't do what I want to do, I'm taking... I'm taking my ball and going home. Right? Isn't that obnoxious? That's essentially what's going on here. Jesus is using that illustration. And they were like many people today. They, these criticizers find fault with whatever the preacher or other church leaders do. No matter what's said or done, these kind of people, they, they love to pick the preacher and the message apart. Uh, they, they use the the objection, whether that objection is real or imagined, as an excuse for the rejection of the message and of the messenger. Well, because they have no saving relationship with Christ, they end up refusing uh, the truth, and then they, and they refuse to serve in Christ's church. And so they love to criticize both in the process, the message and the messenger. And, and, and here in this, the, the picture of the market you can see here in Jerusalem, the marketplace, you need to understand, of Jesus' day was, was a central area of, of a city or a town where people went to do business. It was also a major place where they would go and they'd socialize. They didn't have cafes, so to speak, back then. And, and so they would, they would catch up with friends and family, often in these marketplaces. On certain days of the week, you'd had farmers, the craftsmen, and the merchants. They would they would come to the marketplace. They'd bring their produce, the produce or their wares, and they would sell in a stall or a, or a tent, or even they they might have something on a cart, or or they might just might just have something on the ground. Like a lot of times, they when I go to the Solomon Islands and I go to the market, you'll see these people with their fruit and vegetables. Just they're just sitting on the ground, and and you go and buy what you want. Well, they did that back in Jesus' day as well. And so Jesus is using this he's, he's, as a parable, as an illustration of what was happening with John and Jesus. In fact, here's what one commentator said. I hope you find this helpful. Quote, Children played with each other in the marketplace while their parents sold, bought, or visited. Two games were played, wedding and funeral were particular pop, were, they, they said they were particularly popular. Weddings and funerals were the two major social events. And children liked to mimic their elders by performing mock weddings and mock funerals. Weddings involved festive music and dancing. And when children played the wedding game, they expected everyone to dance when the imaginary flute was played, just like grown-ups did in the real ceremony. Likewise, when they played the funeral game, they expected everyone to mourn and wail when the imaginary dirge was played, just like the paid mourners did when a, when a person actually died. End quote. Well, I hope you find that helpful in trying to explain what, what is Jesus actually talking about here in verse 17. Jesus says, hey, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. <laughs> right? That's the wedding playing the wedding game. Well, the next phrase is, is the, the funeral game. Hey, we sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. All right? The wedding game is, is, is something that's positive. The funeral, the funeral game was something that was negative. Right? So John and Jesus would preach, uh, often would have to preach negative messages, not always positive. That's, that's, the, that's the dirge and people would refuse to mourn. Well, however, there were, uh, we, we see here there's, there's stubborn children, right? 
stubborn children who refuse to go along with the rest of the children. If the game was wedding, well, they wanted to play the funeral game. If, if they wanted to play, you know, everybody, everybody else wanted to play the funeral game, well, they wanted to play the wedding game. Nothing the other children did would actually satisfy them. And that's really frustrating, isn't it? They're grumpy spoil sports. That's what I like to call them. Grumpy spoil sports. You know, they're, they're the kind of person who always wants to throw the wet blanket on whatever you want to do. Well, Jesus applied the first illustration here to the response of the people to John the Baptist. In fact, look what Jesus says. When John came, they, hey, he's neither eating nor drinking. The people said, as a result of that, hey, he's not eating and drinking. Hey, he has a demon. That's what they said about John. He has a demon. By the way, that phrase, neither eating nor drinking, was a figurative description of John's life. Hey, this guy, man, he's, he just doesn't want to be like the rest of us. He's different. I mean, he's, he's wearing camel's hair and he's eating honey and locusts. You ever found that, you know, some, some people get very uncomfortable when you're different from them. And your lifestyle is exposing their sin. Ooh, that makes people uncomfortable. That's what John was doing. His lifestyle was exposing their sin. He ate a simple diet of locusts and honey and lived in the desert. He's dressing in very uncomfortable garments like camel's hair. His message wasn't very nice either, was it? It was very serious and severe. He's telling people, hey, you're a sinner. You need to repent of your sin and you need to show good works. So John's message and his way of life, in a sense, were in the funeral mode, so to speak. That's what Jesus is saying. John's, John's, you know, he, he's, he's playing the dirge. But you didn't mourn, Jesus says. Some of the people became resentful, didn't like John's message of repentance and judgment, and they charged John with having a demon. <laughs> so what it, what John's like one of these, these uh, people, just he graded against the immoral and the unspiritual nerves of people. It's a bit like, you ever had a tooth that's, uh, that's bothering a nerve? You ever had that happen? Or, or maybe, maybe you've got a vertebrae in, in, your, in your spine that's out of alignment that's, that's squashing a nerve, and it's like every, every time you, you do something, it's, oh! Well, that's the way John is. You know, he, he's pressing on the nerve, and it's painful. They tolerated him for a short while. They liked the, the novelty of John. Uh, it, it, you know, he was an exciting preacher but they didn't like their toes getting stepped on. They were uncommitted. They were onlookers. They were spectators. They wanted to go and, and, and see the, the, the spectacle of John, but they didn't want to commit. They didn't want to uh, commit to Christ. They didn't want to repent of their sin. And so they saw they had when they, when they actually had to commit and they had to choose and repent and do good works, well, they chose not to believe and they didn't want to follow. They didn't want to play that game, is what Jesus says. Well, there was a second illustration that Jesus gives here in this passage. Jesus applied the second illustration to the response of the people to himself. In fact, the Bible says, here's what Jesus said, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, hey, he's a gluttonous man. He, he, this man's a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Ooh, oh, that hurts. By the way, how did Jesus actually live? Think about it. His lifestyle is a little bit different from John. Jesus just lived basic life, didn't he? A normal pattern of Jewish life. He ate and drank like everybody else for the most part. Different from John. So Jesus participated in all the normal social activities of that day. So Jesus' unnamed critics, they're not interested in the truth here, are they? They're not interested in the, in the truth, but they do want to condemn Jesus. They don't like Jesus, so they want to condemn him. And, and John the Baptist and Jesus were considered enemies of traditional religion. Because John and Jesus could not be reasoned down, and when you can't reason somebody down, what's the next step? What do they do to preachers and people of truth? Well, then they try to shout you down. 
They try to defame you. If you can't find truth, well, we can find falsehood that will work just as easily. That's what they did to John and Jesus. If the truth doesn't hurt, then we'll find something false to use against you. And that's what, that's what enemies of the cross of Christ do. You need to be aware of that. In fact, Jesus says here uh, toward the end that wisdom is justified by her deeds. Why is he saying that? Well, the idea here is that corrupt human wisdom produces corrupt human deeds, such as the false accusations against John and Jesus. That's that's false wisdom. That's corrupt. Those things weren't true, what they were saying about John and Jesus. But on the other hand, the righteous, divinely empowered wisdom of John and Jesus produced righteous deeds that actually results in, in repentance, forgiveness of sin, and redeemed lives. So let me give you some application from this text. Number one, you need to realize this, okay? This is so true that if people want to reject, they're going to find a way. If they want to reject the truth, they're going to find a way. I know that's not comfortable, but that's reality. John and Jesus had ministries that were in some ways the the opposite of one another. But what was the end result? The end result was the same for, for both John and Jesus, right? They rejected John and Jesus and their messages, although they're very different. Their lifestyles were different. Their, their messages were, were, were often very different. So those who wanted a serious presentation of truth, those who wanted to hear the hell, fire, and damnation kind of sermons, they're the kind of people who are attracted to John at least in the beginning. Because John, he's given the hell, fire, and damnation, God's wrath and judgment kind of message. They prefer John. Those who wanted a more upbeat, more, more joy, joyous celebration, hey, let's, let's hear about heaven and God's kingdom. You know, they, they was, they're the ones who are drawn to Jesus. But in the end, the Jewish people didn't want truth. They wanted conformity. They wanted uh, something that met their preconceived ideas. They wanted something that, that would fit within Judaism. They didn't want their rituals and their norms to be upset. So they rejected both John and Jesus. Well, you know what? Nothing's really changed, has it? It's the same today. Same today. The problem is what? The problem is our human condition. Radical corruption reigns supreme in all of our hearts. It reigns in our day the same way it did in Jesus' day. You can see it in churches, sadly. Churches that are market-driven try to appeal to the itching ears of popular demands, the the kind of preachers who, who will only talk about people's felt needs. And in the end, never truly reach the lost. Those are the kind of churches that will stand before Jesus Christ and Jesus is going to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. So only by proclaiming God's truths and letting the Spirit take over can corruption actually be overcome. So if people want to reject, hey, they're they're going to find a way. Okay, (laughs) They will find a way. Number two, God's messengers should never seek popularity and acceptance. You may not be a prophet like John or Jesus, but nevertheless, we all should be God's messengers, bearing God's message, bringing His message to a world that needs to hear it. And if you're seeking popularity and acceptance, then don't be God's messenger. Just don't be God's messenger. If we need the boldness of John and Jesus... And we got to allow God to justify our ministry. Okay, You bear God's message, and a lot of times, frankly, that message is uncomfortable. Which is why several times in Scripture we're, we're exhorted to not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. That's why Paul had to tell Timothy, hey, you know... You know 
you know, stand, my brother, stand, don't be ashamed, don't give in. <laughs> you need the boldness of John and Jesus. God is the one who's going to justify your ministry and what you say. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of people who might reject you, might reject the message, but God will justify. We must refuse to play the numbers game of worldly popularity that is quite common, even amongst uh, Christians in churches today. It's, it's all over the, the blogospheres and, and, and Christian books and magazines. People talk about numbers, numbers, numbers. Hey, how many people do you have in your church? How many people are in your small group? How many people have you led to the Lord this year? John and Jesus didn't worry about what people thought or even how people reacted. They proclaimed the truth the way God led them to do. And what did they do? Left the results to God. Left the results to God. God's faithful people say what God wants them to say, leaving the results to God. And and by the way, we need to do the same. We need to do the same. Be clear with the gospel. Tell the bad news first. (laughs) The people have broken God's law and they stand guilty before a holy God. That is totally appropriate. That's what Jesus did. Totally appropriate. And so once, once someone recognizes they're a sinner and they stand guilty and they're ashamed, then you can give them the good news. Right? But too often people want to avoid the bad news and want to, and, and stroke people's sin and coddle their sin and tell them, hey, God loves you. Well, yeah, yeah, of course God loves them. But Jesus would always tell someone that they're a sinner. True prophets of God would tell them, you're a sinner. You need to repent, forsake your sin and your idolatry and come to Christ. My friends, God's messengers should never seek popularity and acceptance. But there will always be a remnant, the Scripture says. Always be a remnant. Sure, you might, you may never, uh, you may never make the top ten list of, uh, of Christian leaders. <laughs> you may never make the top ten list of, of the, the most famous Christian books for 2013. You, you may never have a, a high-paying job, or you may never uh, be popular. You may never be accepted by your unsaved workmates. But my friend, if God accepts you, that's all you need. If, if you're popular with God, that's all you need. What else do you need? Do you want God fa- God's face to smile upon you? Do you want God's blessing? Or do you want favor of man? What, what's more important? Of course, we want God to smile on us. We want God's acceptance. It's far more important. We have a wasted life if we can go through life and have our un, all of our unsaved family and, and, and friends and, and our workmates accept us and be popular with them and, and stand before God and, and, and find out we've wasted our life. May God help us to not live wasted lives, but to, to have lives that... They glorify Him. 